We started this new series last week. If you were here, if you were not here, we put everything online, and I would encourage you to go back and just follow along with this series. I really believe it'll be genuinely and truly helpful for you. And we are talking about the core doctrines of Christianity. We're talking about those doctrines that have unified Christians for thousands of years. We're talking about those things that really, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what our faith is, what our beliefs are, and how it shapes our life. That's what we are spending time looking at. And you may ask or may be wondering why. Why are we spending time looking at that? What, what's the point of that? And there's a couple reasons. One is some of you may not be Christians, and you're interested. What is Christianity? Uh, should I just believe what I see on TV? No, there you go. That's the simple answer. But should I just believe what I see, what I read, what I hear? What is it? And you're interested, genuinely interested in exploring Christianity and what it's about. And we're grateful that you're here. And we want to be able to say, here's, here's our beliefs. This is who we are. Love us, hate us, but here is who we are. Here's what makes us different and unique. And here's what makes Christianity beautiful and compelling. And maybe you are a Christian. You are a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And yet, I know many people that have been Christians for lots and lots of years that we still need reminders. We need to understand more. The, the resources and the beauty within Christianity are big enough that you can spend your whole life exploring, and yet that a child can understand. Both of those things are true. And, and, and also, as I presented last week, many people that are Christians actually don't hold to a biblical worldview. You might be a Christian, and yet the beliefs that Christianity has believed for thousands of years, because of various things, we start to veer off from. And so we're spending this time to look at what do Christians believe, and how does that shape our life? How does it change us? How does it create a certain kind of community? And last week was really the foundational building block of the Bible, God's Word, and today we're talking about God. Now, obviously, that's a huge subject to say, we're going to talk, let me just tell you what you need to know about God today. That's kind of a lot, right? And so, obviously, there's a lot that can't be said, but we do want to talk about the doctrine of God. Most people believe in God across the world and in our country. Most people believe in God. The far, far majority of people believe in God, and, and we want to believe there's a God, there's someone out there that's looking out for me. We want to know that we can pray to him, that we can talk to him, that maybe he's doing good things, that when we're struggling or suffering, he's there for us, that he can help us. We, we want to believe that. But who really is God? There's lots of God. I try to look up how many gods are, like how many gods do people, but there's so many hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And if you're to go through history, I mean, there's so many... Millions, probably, of gods throughout history. So who is God when we talk about God? What are we actually talking about? Who is God? And what is he like? Most people believe in God, but what God? What's he like? How does he make a difference? And I'll tell you this. And there's been a lot of studies on this. I was going to show you some different stats and studies, but uh, there's too many, and I was like, ah, forget it. So I'll just give you an illustration. Your view of God will shape your life. How you view God will shape your life. A lot of parts about it, your emotions and your decisions. So think about it this way. Think about aliens for a moment. And I know you're like, I thought we were at church. Yeah, but let's get sci-fi for a moment, okay? So think about aliens. There's all sorts of different kinds of aliens. And your view of aliens, if they're real, and I know some of you, the truth is out there, right? So it, it, your view of aliens will shape how you would respond to them. So maybe, like E.T., if it's just kind of a cute alien that's lost, your view is, oh, I need to help this alien. That would shape how you respond. But if it's more, there's some movies where it's the aliens, I think uh, Independence Day, and there's a group of people that are on top of this tower waiting for the aliens because they think they're going to be good. Like, oh, these will be our saviors. They will actually help us. And so we hope that aliens will come and they'll be able to give us better technology and they'll be able to help us, you know, bring peace on earth and stop being divided. They will help us. That will shape your view. Or probably the majority view of aliens is that they're evil and they want to destroy you, right? So how you view these entities that exist will, and that wasn't like a position, I'm just saying, how you view these entities will determine how you live your life. Now, I know that's kind of silly, but think about the same is true with God. 
If you think God is this non-judgmental, just kind of grandpa figure, that will shape your life. If you think God is full of wrath and fire and brimstone and basically hates everybody, that will shape your life. If you view that God is totally uninvolved, doesn't really care, some people call this the, the watchmaker view of God, that yes, he designed everything, but then he just kind of sits back and now it's just ticking. If, you, if that's how you view God, he's just kind of uninvolved. Yeah, he's there, but he's uninvolved. That'll shape your life. If you view that God is involved in everything, and I remember I, in college I had a friend that he was like trying to be really spiritual, and he was, uh, he was like, okay, God, should I take a left or should I take a right? Like, okay, that's an interesting view of God. Like, God is more, he's not uninvolved, he's too involved. He's a possessive boyfriend that's like, you know, checking every text and everything, right? Like, okay, God, back up a little bit. But how you view God will shape your life. Is he just there to make you happy? Is he there to judge you and control you? Is he there just whenever you need him in a pinch? What, what's, like, how you view God will shape your life. And if you miss out who God is, you'll miss out on relating to him in a way you could. If you get a wrong view of God, you'll miss out on the potential relationship and way that he could be involved in your life. What if we could have the right view of God? What if we could actually know God and experience God as a part of our life? What would that change and how would it lead us? And so to do that, we have to know who God is and what he's like and what he says about himself and how that is different and better than many of the visions that are presented to us. But we got to start with this question. Can we know God? Can we know God? Can we actually know who God is and what he is like? And there's a question kind of before that question that we're not going to spend too much time on, but I at least want to scratch the surface, which is this. Can we even know that God exists? Can we even know that he's there? Now, I said most people believe in God, and that's true, but is that even logical? Can we know that God exists? And here's what the Bible says. And like I said, I can't spend too much time on kind of an apologetic of God's existence, but here is what the Bible says about this question. And I can't explain every single piece of this, but it says this, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God is wrathful and will judge people because they've suppressed what they know to be true. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that's just his characteristics, what he's like, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. So this is saying you can walk outside and know some things about who God is. You can know unless you suppress the truth, unless you don't want it to be true, unless you try to make it not so, try to come up, you will know things about God. It's been clearly seen. God has shown it to you. So we go on hikes with our kids and especially when they were younger and I still like to do this with nieces and nephews and go outside and just be like, hey, so what do you think this tells you? When you look at this flower, when you look at this tree, what does this tell you about God? And even as little kids, they can say, well, he must be a creative God. Well, he must be a strong God because if he could make these big old rocks, he must be a strong God. Well, he must like different colors and he must like, they probably don't use the word diversity, but he must like diversity because there's not just one kind of flower. There's all these kind of flowers. And he must, he must love us that he would make all this stuff for us. And it smells good and tastes good. Don't eat that. And it's like it feels good, right? He must, there, he must be a big God because th there's a lot that we can explore and see. Like even little kids can know that stuff unless you begin to suppress the truth. That, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, what, has, what can be known about God? It's clear. God has shown it to you. You can see it. It's evident. And so we're without excuse. And there's so many different, you know, arguments for God, and that's not really the point of this series. Is not really an apologetic series. But I'll just tell you two things real quick of just the existence of God. And there's, you can have a lot of questions, and that's fine. And I'd be happy to talk with you more about these things. But when you just look at the world, 
it seems like this was designed. Everything else that we know that's complicated has a designer to it. Even things that aren't that complicated. Even this piece of paper, this is not that complicated of a thing. And yet, you wouldn't imagine this just appeared. You would go, someone took the time to design. I don't know how they make paper. I couldn't do this. Someone designed this that's intelligent. Well, much less a phone or much less a computer or a boat. or like so- Obviously, the complexity of this, there's a designer. That's called the argument from design. Or there's also what is called the cosmological argument. Now you can feel intelligent. You're like, oh, yes, I learned about cosmology today. The cosmological argument is this, that everything that had... Everything that has a cause, everything that has a cause had to have a beginning. And we know that, right? You don't ever just think, it's similar to the design argument. You wouldn't just stumble upon this and go, I bet that just existed always. That everything that has had a cause must have had something that caused it, must have had a, must have had a beginning. And that's true with every single thing we know. And here's, here's, here's where Christianity, or even just generic theism, and atheism come back to the same point. So you say, well, how did a human get there? Well, a mother and a father. And how did this get? How did a tree get there? How did everybody kind of stretches back to some beginning point? If you're a Christian, you say, well, there must have been something eternal that created everything that now exists. And if you're not a Christian, you know what you say? There must have been something eternal that created everything that now exists. It's just that a Christian believes that was a supernatural entity that we call God. And those that are atheists would say it was, and I'm not trying to be coy here, but it was dust. Dust is what is eternal and has always existed. And from that, everything exploded and got created. And I would say, well, no, everything got created and exploded because there's an eternal being that made that. And you just kind of have to decide which one seems more likely, an eternal, all-powerful being that creates or eternal dust that creates. And I, and I know that might, I'm not trying to be insulting, but it, it does feel a little silly. But when you go, one of those things is eternal. One of those things ultimately has preexisted forever. So that's what Paul is saying. And most little kids don't walk around and go, yeah, this tree, I bet it came from dust. They go, hmm, I bet this was made. And Paul's saying, yeah, we know it. We might suppress it, but we know it. Now, okay. But even if that God exists, maybe he's unknowable. You could say that that God exists, all right? Again, most people believe, high 90 percentage of people in the high 90s believe God exists. That's what most people believe. But maybe he's unknowable because this big, you know, how could you actually know this person? How could you actually know what he's like? And, and people would even say something like, it's actually arrogant to claim you could know about God. Isn't that an arrogant claim to say, I know what God is like? Oh, okay, really? Or people will say things like, you can't put God in a box. Like, you, you, because God is so big, you can't just kind of create your own, you can't just define him and put parameters on him. You can't put God in a box. Or some people might say, look, we all have different views of God. And God is so big and so complex. We all have different views. How could we ever think that our view is the only view? So you hear things like that, which is saying, isn't he actually unknowable? Or sometimes, even to go further than that, people will say something like, I I just believe in some kind of higher power, the universe or forces that are there, because it, it feels so complex to think we could say, no, it's this person that's God. So I know something's out there, but it's got to be so big that we could never know. Those are the kinds of things that are said. And and here's here's the truth, actually. The Bible agrees with a lot of that. The Bible agrees with a lot of that because the Bible says things like this. The Lord is great, highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He's so big, it would be impossible for you to go, okay, I, I got it figured out. I got it. It's unsearchable. Or it says, this, Paul says in Corinthians, for who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. You think you could understand God? You think you could know his thoughts? No, he's too big. You, people can't even understand you, he says. No one even knows your thoughts. 
How, how do you think you could know God's mind and God's thoughts? He's too big. He's too expansive. And this, this is from the book of Job. He says, can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol. That's the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Saying, God is so big. What could you know about him? How could you understand him? How could you comprehend him? In some ways, it is kind of saying, don't put God in a box. And how, how arrogant could you be to think that you could know him? So there's a part of that that the Bible agrees with. And we know that that's true in a lot of different areas, right? That the status of something is hard for something lower than that to understand. I'm a human, and we have a fish in our home, a little beta fish. And to my chagrin, he doesn't get me. You know, he just doesn't get me. He's a fish, and he never will. And we don't treat him because there's such a difference. We don't treat him like a human. He doesn't, we don't bring the little bowl and sit at the family dinner table when we're having dinner together. And we have baby dedications coming up. No one's ever brought their fish and been like, yes, I'd like to dedicate it. I chose this verse for this fish. No one's ever done that because it's a different kind of being. And the comprehensibility between beings is so much different, right? So between us and God, the distance is greater between a fish and me, between fish and you. And yet, what if he wants to be known? That's the difference. See, God is big, and he's incomprehensible and unsearchable. and all. But what if he wants to be known? What if he actually wants to show himself? What if, if what if, so I can't do this, but if I was the kind of being that could actually transform myself into a beta fish and say, I'd like to, I want you to know me. So I come into the bowl and swim around with Nutty is his name. And I swim around with Nutty and I tell him, hey, let me just tell you about humanity. And then if I want to reveal myself, I actually could be known. And the Bible says that's what God has done, that he is unsearchable, that his vastness is so great, but he actually wants to be known. I love how it says it in Isaiah. He says, this is God speaking I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. God is saying, I want to be seen. I want to be known. I, I call out, here am I. Here's who I am. Or in John, it says this, in 1 John, and we know that the Son of God, that's Jesus, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. That's not a human becoming a fish, but it's God becoming man and entering not into the bowl, but into the world and saying, I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am. I'm giving you, you couldn't have understanding, but I'm giving you understanding so that you may know. And Paul prays in Ephesians, we looked at this book at the beginning of the year, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that he would reveal who he is so you would know him. So yes, God's big, he's unsearchable, he's great, all this stuff is true, we're so small compared to him, and yet he wants to be known. That's the difference. The only way that we could know the unknowable is if he reveals himself to us. Can we know God? Yes, because he reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us in his word. He revealed himself to us by his son. He reveals himself to us by what he does. Part of how we know what someone's like is by what they do. We see, oh, because you did this, you're a savior. Because you did this, you're strong. Because you did this, you're a comforter. We see what he's like by what he does. And the reformers would talk about the, that God would speak to us in baby talk so that we could understand what he's like. So even when the Bible says things like the mighty hand of God, well, God doesn't actually have a hand, but God uses language for us in the same way that you talk to a baby. God's kind of like going, oh, Gucci, Gucci, goo, humans, you know, so that we can understand. 
he says things like his hand and the face of God, and, and he's like, you know, I just have to kind of speak to you like a fish, like a baby, so we can understand him. But God does reveal himself to us, and, and not just facts. Not just facts. God doesn't just say, here's kind of, here's a bunch of facts about me I want you to know. Here's who I am. Here's my CV. God, God, that's not what God does. God's not like, you, you know, you, there's, there's, things, there's people that you, you don't know, but you know a lot about. For those of you that are into sports, you know a lot about certain athletes. For those of you that are into movies, you know a lot about certain actors. For those of you that are into musicians, you know a lot about certain musicians, right? There's people that you don't know, but you know a lot about them. You could list off a lot of facts about them. And sometimes even a celebrity will go on uh, a show, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of old, so I just remember when I was a kid always watching Barbara Walters interview these celebrities. And some of you are like, Barbara who? Well, that's fine. But you, he, she would interview these celebrities, and, and they would be like a tell-all. And you would feel like, oh, yeah, I kind of know them. You don't know them. They're just doing something to get you to go watch more of their movies or whatever. They're acting like you know them. They're giving you a small little peek into who they are, but you don't know them. That's not what God does. God isn't just saying, I want you to know facts about me. God's saying, I actually want to know you. I want to be your father. I want to be your friend. I want to be your Lord. I want to actually have a relationship with you. I want you to know me, not in just knowing about me, but I want you to enter into a relationship where you get to experience all that I am. That is the kind of knowing that God gives to us. It's a personal knowing where he doesn't just give you facts, but he gives you himself. He says, here's me, come, and invites us to relate to him, which, by the way, is what real love always does. I was talking to someone recently that said, I don't believe in God, but I believe in loving forces, and had this idea that we can't really know who God is or what. I don't believe in a God, but I believe in loving forces. But the truth is, it's not a loving force if it doesn't invite us into personal relationship, if it doesn't actually reveal who it is. That's not love. We know. If I said, I love my wife, but I don't tell her anything about me, you'd go, that's not love. I love my wife, and I live in a separate house, and I don't really want her to engage in relationship with me. You'd go, that's not, that's a weird version of love. They're going to probably make a documentary about you one day, you know? You'd go, that's not the kind of love. I don't, I don't think you know what love is. So loving forces, you can't have love without personality. We know that even just from humanly speaking, right? So if someone says, I believe in a God of love, or I believe in loving forces, but it's not a love that has actually brought us into relationship, that's not love. That would be the weakest version of human love that could exist, much less perfect divine love. God has invited us in. Now here's what this means on this point of can we know God. It means this. God wants you to know him in a personal, relating way. But it also means this, we can miss him. If God is saying, I want to bring you in and for you to experience all that I am, it means we can, yeah, God's there, but you can miss him. You can be around God. You can know facts about God, but actually miss relating with him. You could know God the way that you know Tom Cruise. And not if one of you is actually, well, I'm Jack Cruz. He's my brother. Well, great. I'd like to talk to you after this service. But I, I don't mean like that. But you, you, could, you, can, you could know God only the way that you know a celebrity. You could know God because you've been around him a long time and have been around people that know him. We've lived in our house that we live in for almost 11 years. And uh, our neighbors lived there for um, like 20 or 25 years. And for the first five years that we lived there, we'd wave Something, I don't remember the exact timeline. My w wife might correct me later. But let's say for the first five years, we would wave and say hi and knew her name. Her name's Jackie. But didn't actually know her. We were around her. We knew a few facts about her. We'd wave. We, we had a cordial, hey, how are you? Crazy weather, huh? You know, that kind of thing. But didn't, didn't really know her. And then over the last five years, she's like, an adopted grandma in our family. She's in her 80s. And we have meals with her, and we play games with her, and, and we hang out with her. And she helps 
take our kids to school sometimes, and we help with various things at her house, and, and we have a relationship with her. And it can be like that with God sometimes. See, God says, you can know me, not just facts about me. I want you to be in relationship with me. And what if you miss out? What if you think, I know God, and yet it's just kind of, God, how's the weather? And you're not actually engaging with him and getting to experience life with him. That's the way God wants you to know him. That's what the unsearchable almighty actually says, I want to enter into the fishbowl with you and let us relate with him. And how sad would it be to just wave, know his name, but not actually experience life with him? Can we know God? Yes. And he wants, he says, here I am. He wants to be known. He wants you to be able to relate to him. This is what he gives. And then we just have to say, well, then, okay, who is God? Who is he? And many people, as I said, believe in God. But one of the things I often like to say is that Christians don't believe in God. Christians don't believe in God. Do you know that the early Christians, they were constantly accused. One of the accusations against them was that they were atheists. Why? Well, because the Roman Empire believed in tons of gods, hundreds of gods. And the Christians said, no, nah, there's only this one God. Well, yeah, there is that one God, but there's also this God. And no, no, there's not. There's just, so they would say, well, you are atheists. How dare you? And Christians today, I, I would say the same. We don't believe in God. If what you mean by God, which is what a lot of people mean by God, is just this generic sky fairy, just kind of a generic old white guy with a long beard that's found in Renaissance paintings, or just whatever, like we don't believe in God, generically speaking. We have a brand name God, if you want to say it like that, right? We don't believe in a generic God. We don't believe in that God. We have a very specific God that we believe in. And the doctrine for that, or the name for that, is called the Trinity. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the God that we believe in. That's the God that Christians have always believed in. That's the God, by the way, that Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, all agree on. There's not a lot of things, there's some things, but not a lot of things that we all agree on. That's one of them. We say, who is God? We say, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, but you, you know, you don't wear a cape. We drive by a Catholic church on the way here every day, and the guy always, he's got this long green cape, and I'm like, I need to get that cape. Like, well, you don't wear a cape. Yeah, but we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, yeah, we, we're, we're united on who God is. Even if capes divide, God unites, you know? <laughs> Here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. I'll be using this probably throughout the series. It's uh, developed in the 1600s, really out of the Protestant Reformation, one of the best confessions of faith that we have, and, and it's helpful also because it's not new. It's not like, oh, I saw this on Instagram. This is a really cool thing that people are saying about who God is. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. And then the next question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There be, and I love it, it says there be. It's the, it, the pirates wrote this, actually. <laughs> there be three persons in the Godhead. <laughs> the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. That's the God that we believe in. That's the God that we believe in. That's the God that Christians believe in. That's the God that Christians have believed in for thousands of years. That's the God that is a unifying doctrine that Christians believe in. It's distinct and unifying within Christianity, which is why I say we don't believe in God, generically speaking. And when people say, well, we all have the same God. No, we don't. This is the God that Christians say that we believe in. This is the God. So here's what this means. If you're a Christian and you say, I believe in God, that's the God that the Bible presents. If you don't believe in that God, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You don't believe in the Christian God. You believe in some God, but you don't believe in the God that the Bible presents. You might 
invent your own God. And many people do. But you don't believe in the God that the Bible says it believes in. So I'm not saying you can't believe in God. Many people believe in God. But you don't believe in this God. We don't believe in a generic, nameless, faceless, unidentified God. We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who we believe in. That's what Christians have always believed in. The Bible says there is one God that exists in three distinct persons that are equally God. I'll just show you a few different verses around this. Deuteronomy, one of the classic verses, this is called the Shema. It says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Lord is one. Really emphasizing there is one God. When the Old Testament was written, it was written, just like the New Testament, within a polytheistic worldview, religion. And so to claim there is one God, the Lord is one, was, again, unique among the nations. And then you get to the New Testament, and you start hearing, and there's glimmers of this in the Old Testament that you hear. I just don't have time to go through all of them, which is why I would encourage you to study outside of this time with various resources that we've recommended and provided. 1 Corinthians says this, Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And when the New Testament talks about Lord, it's talking about Jesus. And there are different activities, but the same God. And this is the word theos, which means usually referring to the Father. Works all of them in each person. So talking about these different ministries that we have in the church and different gifts we have in the church, but talking about their source and where they're from, and it uses these three names side by side. Spirit, Lord, God. Spirit, Lord referring to Jesus. God referring to the Father. Or... At the end of the book of Matthew, when Jesus gives what's called the great commission to his disciples to go into the world and make disciples, it says, he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, in the name, not the name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So it, it's a really interesting sentence structure to say the name of three distinct persons. It'd be weird if I said, hey, I want, uh, you know, what's, what's, that, what's the name of that person? You said Joe. No, no, no. Oh, I, I got it. The name was George Bob Phil. Huh? That was the name? Yeah. The name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God the name, and yet three distinct persons that exist. One way to kind of think about this is, uh, this is from a theologian named Wayne Grudem, is the circle is representative of God. Anything inside this circle is God. One essence, God. And yet there's three distinct persons but the reason it's a dotted line is because it's not saying there's three gods and they're totally cut off and separate. There's one God, three distinct persons, and yet all equally within the God circle. Now, throughout the years, people have tried to use different analogies, water, steam, ice, or the, 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 the three-leaf clover, and all, all these kind of different analogies. And a lot of them break down in different ways, which, of course, is what we would expect when you're thinking about God and the essence of who God is. If I tried to use a clover or ice and water to describe your essence in nature, you'd probably end up being offended. You know, like this little leaf is just like you. Like what? Yeah, it's, you know, it crumbles and, and it's green and whatever. Like you'd be like, huh? Like maybe, kind of. So it, it always breaks down when we try to use an analogy to explain who God is. But it can still be helpful to kind of go, okay, yeah, something like that is what the Bible is getting at when it says the Trinity. Try unity. Three persons, one God, all equally God. Now, maybe you think, does that even matter? Does that even matter? You know, I just believe in God. But again, well, what God do you believe in? If I said that about you, if let's say we were trying, if you were, I was standing with you and there was someone and uh, you, wanted, you wanted to be introduced to them and you started saying, yeah, my name is, uh, my name's Jenny and I studied at this school and my job. And I said, none of that matters. 
this is Jenny. You'd probably be offended. Like, well, it does matter. I want them to know who I am. I want to tell them about me. That doesn't matter. They just, they just need to know you are Jenny. Like, okay, yeah, but here's, I want to tell them about who I am, my, my, what I do and what I'm like and where I'm from. Nope. You'd probably be offended, right? But God says, here's who I am. So sometimes you might go, well, does that even matter, the Trinity? And it does. And it matters because this is who God says, this is me. I am Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm not a generic God that's just out there that you can kind of come up with whatever conception you want. I am Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's so much, actually, if you begin to think about the Trinity, because what I'm arguing throughout this whole series, but even today, what I'm arguing is that your view of God, like aliens, your view of God will shape your life. And if you don't have this view of God, your life will be shaped in a direction that is based on a false God. Let me give you an example. The Bible, and you may have heard me say this if you've been around for a while, but in the book of Genesis, and we'll talk about this uh, next week, I think, when it talks about the creation of humanity, it says that we are made in the image of God. But if you're made in the image of God, and God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know what that means? You are made in the image of a God that has existed in community eternally, which means you are in your DNA, you are people are people people. We are made for community. We're made for relationships. Why? Not just because we go, yeah, that would be nice, I'd like them, but because you are made in the image of a God who has existed in eternal community forever. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, in part, is you're a community person. It also means, based on that also, that love is at the center of the universe, if you want to say it that way. Because God has existed in eternal community, loving one another forever. You could not say that you believe in a God of love if you don't believe in the Trinity. Because if you believe in just this kind of single entity God, monopersonal God, it could never be love until it created something to love. So if you say, I just kind of believe in this unipersonal God, well, that's not a God of love. He, he might have become loving once he made humans, but love wasn't at the core of who he is. Only if you have Trinity do you actually have love is at the core of everything. And there's so much more that I could talk about, unity and diversity and all, all sorts of good things that we can see from the Trinity that shapes who we are. But here's what this means. Who is God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have a father who has planned and directed the world. You have the son who accomplishes God's will and acts things out. You have the spirit who applies those things to your heart. All God working for you, loving you, inviting you to know him. And then some of this has already kind of been mentioned, but the last part is, well, okay, so what is this God like? Can God be known? Yes, because he makes himself known. Who is God? Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is God like? This is when we start to talk about what are called the attributes of God, which was mentioned in the confession of faith. What is God like? And sometimes people will say things like, well, I believe in a God that's like this, or I could never believe in a God that is like this, or to me, God is like this. And all those phrases get you in really dangerous water because you are inventing your own thing. When you say, I believe in a God that's like this, or I could never believe in a God, you're inventing your own concept of God. And I don't want to invent my own concept of God. I don't want, I don't want a God that I invented. I want the true God to actually worship and know him, not just my own imagination. I want to actually, if, if there's a God, I want to know the true God, not just what I created in my head. And so if you've ever heard those statements or felt those statements or, or there's been parts of who God is that you're like, I can't believe in a God like, well, that's just what happens when you encounter any relationship. You can't have a friend and say, well, I believe in a friend that always texts me back. And I'm like, well, that's not me. Sorry. You can't just, any relationship, there's always going to be some parts that you're drawn to and some parts that you're like, oh, that kind of bothers me a little bit. 
But that's how you know you're actually in a relationship with a real person versus just your imaginary friend. You know? Like, this guy always does what I want. Who is he there? Oh, well, I believe in a friend that's, this is my wife, you know? And like, okay, you're strange. Documentary, you know? So what is God like? What are his attributes? And again, I told you, this is such a huge subject, so I can't give you all the attributes of God. Theologians will break up the attributes, even though there's a lot of overlap, and this isn't a super hard distinction, but they'll break up the attributes into what are called the incommunicable, I mean, you can't communicate, incommunicable attributes, they're not shared with humanity, and communicable attributes, meaning they're shared with humanity. And there's, there's a lot of overlap, but I, I want to give you a few that are highlighted and important. One of those is the attribute of aseity. I'm just giving you kind of a technical term, even though you'll probably never use that in normal language. But aseity, or what that really means is God's independence, meaning that everything else is derived from something. Everything else, another way you could say it, is everything else is created. Only God is not derived from anything else. Only God is creator versus created. I love the way that Paul says this in the book of Acts. He's talking in Athens, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God doesn't need anything. Everything else needs something. God doesn't need anything. He's the one that gives everything. He doesn't need, you want to know how liberating this actually is? God doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from you. But here's what, so then why does God tell me to do things? And why does God, you know what it means? He wants everything for you means any instruction he gives and any way that he seeks to lead you and anything that he reveals to you, God wants everything for you. He doesn't need anything. There's nothing you can do where God's like, oh, whew, thank you. I was worried about that. There's nothing. God doesn't need anything. He gives. He's utterly independent. But also, God is unchanging, or the fancy word is God's immutability. You can't mute him. He's unchanging. And think about everything else around us changes, right? Everything around, if you've lived in Denver area for a while or even maybe just where you grew up and you go back, you're like, oh, that building didn't used to be there. Oh, they knocked that down. They built this. Oh, that restaurant, oh, I remember we used to go there. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh, this, oh, wow, they changed this. And things, the, the neighborhood around you, your, your residence changes. You change. Ever look at an old photo of yourself? And sometimes when you look at an old photo of yourself, you're like, ugh, I can't believe I look like that. And sometimes you're like, oh, I wish I looked like that, you know. <laughs> but you change. You look at old photos of yourself. You look, I mean, everything changes, right? That's just one of the constants of life. Things constantly change. God does not change. God doesn't change. I, I love some of these verses. It says, because I, the Lord, have not changed, you, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. God is saying here, my character hasn't changed, which is why I'm not going to destroy you. Because I'm always a gracious God, always a merciful God. And it's because I don't change that you're still alive. Because what if you're like, oh, man, I'm so thankful I believe in a God of love and mercy. And he's like, yeah, I was. But that was last year. This year's been wild, bro. COVID, and, you know, I've changed. I'm not the same as I was anymore, you know. God says, because I don't change, you can count on the consistency of my character. Aren't you thankful for that? And in Isaiah, he says, remember what happened long ago. This is God speaking. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. It's not just that his character doesn't change. It's that God's plans don't change. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you're like, yes. And he's like, I did, but not anymore. What? I thought your plan, yeah, I don't have that plan. I lost that plan. It's gone. 
God says, my plan will take place. I thought you were going to send a Messiah. I was. I decided not to. I thought, Jesus, you said I'd always be with you. That's what I was going to do, but I got distracted about other things going on. God's plans don't change. His character doesn't change. God is unchanging, which means he's reliable. It means you can count on him. It means who God has revealed himself, the God that you can know, because he said, here is who I am. Here is what I do. Here is what I'm like. That God is the same God. Who he has been is who he will be. That means you can count on him. The Bible says about Jesus, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. That means you can look at who Jesus says he is and go, that's still who he is. It means he'll be that way to me. And he'll be that today and he'll be that in whatever you face in the future. Jesus Christ, God, is the same. He doesn't change. It means you can rely on him. You can say, but God, you say you're like this. This is who I've come to know you as. And he says, yes, that's who I'll always be. God doesn't change. It's a great comfort and counsel to say, I can count on him. And God is omnipresent. Am I a God who is only near? This is the Lord's declaration. And not a God who is far away? Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see him? The Lord's declaration. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The Lord's declaration. God says, I'm I'm everywhere. I'm far. I'm near. I'm I'm everywhere. I fill the heavens and I fill the earth. I'm, I'm everywhere. To know that wherever you go, God is there is a great encouragement. God is everywhere that you are. Everywhere that you are, God is there. In every hospital room, God is there. In every classroom, God is there. In every family room, in every dining room table, God is there. At every cubicle, in every office, God is there. In every drive, God is there. There In every nursery room with a crying baby, in every bedroom in a sleepless night or an argument, God is there. God is here in Arvada. God is in Denver. God is, if you move and you left friends and family and you're in a new place, God is there. And if you have to go somewhere that you weren't planning on going and it's a scary situation and you don't know what to do, God is there. God is everywhere which is a great encouragement to know. I'm not by myself. There's no place that God's like, yeah, I don't, I don't go to that neighborhood. There's no situation that you enter in in some place where you're going to face something and you go, I wish I had someone with me. And God says, I can't go there. God is everywhere. You see, I want you to understand something. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm preaching this and not just teaching it to you is because what you believe about God, I'm going to fall off. What you believe about God, I need a real pulpit, not this little flimsy thing. <clears throat> they used to have giant pulpits, you know. Got it. Someone needs to make one of those. <clears throat> what you believe about God will shape your life. What you believe about who he is will change your day. It will change how you think about where you are and what you do. And there's a bunch more. This is, again, from the confession. What is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful, and gracious, long-suffering, that's patience, and abundant in goodness and truth. There's so much more that I could talk about. God is so much. Why does this matter? I, I started to already tell you, but one of our core problems in life is our unbelief, which then makes it so we rely on ourselves. 
God says, here's who I am, but we don't really believe or we kind of wave, but we're not really engaging with. And so what do we do? We, well, we need something, so we rely on ourselves. God's not here for me. I've got to be here for me. It doesn't, I don't know what God, God doesn't speak. I've got to figure things out on my own. And what happens is if you rely on yourself and have a functional atheism, if you rely on yourself, you are your God. And you're, you might be a great person, but you're not a great God. And things then start to crumble. We, f- we feel fear and anxiety. We feel overwhelming grief and sorrow. We lack the wisdom that we need. We want other people's approval and respect and recognition because we don't really receive anything from God. We search for happiness and try to get it in all these different places because we're not really experiencing the joy and blessing of God. All of these different things because we functionally actually live as atheists, not relying on who God has said that he is. But what if you knew who God was? What what are you facing in your life right now? And how are you facing it? Like, what what are the tools that you're using to face it? How are you seeking to overcome or make it through and endure or live with joy in the difficulty and the things that you're facing? Kids, marriage, work, money. How are you facing it? The Bible says is you can face it by knowing who God is, and is that you know who God is, as you relate to who God is, that it, you actually, his grace, his peace is multiplied to you as you know who he is, which enables you to face those things. I, here's one of the ways that this is said. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace for all the different things you face. It'll, it'll not just be added to you. It'll be multiplied to you as you know who God is. So you can face anything. Not because you got this or you're great or you're awesome. Not because of that, but because of who God is. And as you know him, you can engage and face all the different things in your life. I like to say this phrase, and sometimes rhyming phrases are helpful because you'll remember them. But the revelation is the invitation. Meaning when God reveals himself to be something, if God says, I'm patient, I'm kind, I'm loving, I'm omnipresent, I'm, I'm unchanging. The revelation is the invitation for you to engage with God based on that. Oh God, you're omnipresent? Okay, then I'm invited to engage with you here in every place that I am. Oh God, you're merciful? Okay, I'm invited to engage with you then when I need mercy. Oh God, you're, you're just. I'm invited to bring the injustices that I've experienced to you and ask for your help. God, you're a faithful friend that never leaves my side. Oh, so you're inviting me to engage with you then as a friend. You're a father. You're a comforter. You're a helper. You're powerful. You're a refuge. The revelation is the invitation. God never just says, here's who I am, and you go, oh, that's nice. I wish I had someone like that. The revelation is his invitation to you. He's all of that stuff for you. He's not just all of that in the abstract. He's all of it for you. Every attribute of God is for you. He's not just, another way to say this would be this, he's not just love, he's loving. He's not just strong, he's strengthening. All right, last week, I was, my, the, the production people were like, oh man, right on, you were able to keep your time under, that won't happen this week. Um, also, God reveals who he is to us, not just so we rely upon him, and rest upon him, but so that we actually imitate him. So in Leviticus, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God am holy. Now there's certain things God doesn't say, be omnipresent since I'm omnipresent, that now we're in the 
communicable attributes, but he tells us to imitate who he is. Therefore, be imitators of God. As dearly loved children and walk in love, as Christ also loved us, gave himself for us, sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So saying God is loving, now you be loving to one another. God is forgiving, now you be forgiving to one another. So we are called to imitate who God is. Which means this, and I won't even touch all that, that's just more attributes of God. <clears throat> it means this, if you don't know who God is, it's hard to reflect who he is and imitate him. So part of the reason you need to know who God is is so you can rely upon him. But part of the reason you need to know who God is is so you can reflect him to other people. The more that you know who God is, the more that that flows out of your life to other people. So often, when I am failing as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, I try to remind myself, Here, okay, God is like this. God's the kind of father that would do this. And try to correct and change the way that I interact. This is the kind of, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. Here's what he's like as a pastor. So we need to know who he is, and then we reflect him to one another. We need to know who God is so we rest on him, and so we reflect him. And listen, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't your marriage be better, and your family be better, and your job be better, and your community group be better if, if everyone was reflecting more what God was like to one another? That's why we need to know who God is you will reflect some image of God. It just might not be the true God. This is why this question is so important. We want to know the true God. We want to be able to rest on him and reflect him. So most people believe in God. Most people believe in God. I'm assuming most of you came in here with some belief in God, big, little, somewhere in the middle. Most of us believe in God, and most people believe in God, but we want to know him rightly and not miss out on who he is. Not know him from across the street, but get to know him and experience all that he is to us and for us because who you believe that God is will shape your life. It'll shape your community. It'll shape your emotions. It'll shape your decisions. It'll shape your future. It'll shape how you go through suffering. It'll It'll shape your life, who you know that God is. We're going to take communion in just a moment. If you're a Christian, communion is a time that Christians remember this God that we have. If you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, uh, there's a little table back there. Grab one of those. Communion is a time that we remember God so wanted to be known that he entered into this world. He so wanted you to know him that he removed every barrier to our being able to be in relationship with him. He, he died for our sin, our rejecting and ignoring God. He, he died. His blood was poured out and his body was broken on the cross because of our sin that separates us from God. He wanted to bring us to himself so we could know him and enjoy him forever. That's what we remember when we take communion. What he did and his life, and his death, and his resurrection to bring us to know him and enjoy him. And so as you take communion, spend some time and pray. Thank God for who he is. Thank God that he invites you into relationship and to be known by him. Thank him and confess where you have just kind of waved at him from across the street. Confess where you've rejected him or ignored him or just not even cared who he presents himself to be but just your own definition of him? When you have said to him as he's revealed himself to be, I can't believe in a God like that? Confess where you haven't relied upon him, where you haven't reflected him, where you've lived as a functional ape. Confess those things. And as you take communion, you're reminded he forgives you of those things. His blood cleanses every sin. And then pray and ask God to help you Show others what he's like through your life. And if there's something you're facing, say, God, you've shown yourself to be this. I just, I need, I, need to, I need to know that. I need to experience that right now in this situation in my life. Bring your heart to him. And then we'll sing a few songs in response to this good God that we have. Imagine all you know about God dropping levels deeper 
Imagine searching the unsearchable and knowing the unknowable and coming to experience more of who he is. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us and how you reveal yourself to us. We, we could never know you if you didn't show us what you're like. Thank you that you reveal who you are. Thank you that we can live with you as a part of every area of our life. The almighty, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving God. Thank you that we see you perfectly in Jesus. Let us know you more. Let us reflect you to one another. Let us be a church that shows others who you are. Let these truths go deeper into our heart. In your name, Jesus. Amen.